Well, today we're going to press forward in our series of Standing Strong in the Storms of Life. And if most of you were here, I suspect last week you got a goldenrod-colored document. Um, Boy, it got dark over there all of a sudden, didn't it? I think, I guess we just dimmed some, no, we're dimming the, no, let's dim these lights. How's that? Why don't we get these ones to go down? Somebody, whoever's, who's doing that? Well, let's say these are the ones that need to go away, right? Is that too bright for you guys? Whatever. Just so you, now you can, I'll go by colors here. The goldenrod sheets we handed out last week, I'm going to use a little bit today, but also want to suggest that if you don't have one of the brown ones, I'm going to be referring to this one today as well. Um, last week, in introducing this course, I talked about the whole idea of suffering. And again, if we were going to have a vote here and submit our result to God, we'd probably vote for less suffering than we've had in our lives, right? I would, okay? I would vote for that if if, if it was a voting matter. Unfortunately or fortunately, the way you look at this, that's not uh, how God makes his decisions, is he? Is it? God's kingdom is not a democracy. Do you know that? We have input. We get to talk to God. But God has a sovereign plan which is bigger than any one person, one church, one country, one uh, era of time. God's sovereign plan is way bigger and way beyond anything that we can fully or properly understand. And I think that's important that we understand as we try to make sense of what's going on in our individual life and our individual family and our individual circumstances, and then we appeal to God, this doesn't make sense. And somehow in that conversation... God is trying to help us come to the place where we get a better understanding of his purposes. And as the scripture says to us, as high as the heavens are above the earth, what's the scripture say? You can say the rest of it, Isaiah. So high are my thoughts above yours. In other words, it's not just higher, more flowery vocabulary. God is just looking at things from a different perspective. And we don't want to assume too much there. Like, for instance, we can often assume that if we are experiencing suffering and God is not immediately releasing us from it or helping us with it, that God doesn't care. Because that, the scripture says that God is love. God is the good shepherd. He's the one that wants the best for us. Jesus said in John chapter 10, which is God speaking firsthand on earth, he said, I have come to this earth that you might have life and have it to its full, or have life in abundance on earth. Before we even get to heaven, that was his statement. So how do we balance all of that? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit today about our second theme, which is understanding trials. And I don't mean the kind of trial that you go to if you've broken the law and there's a judge sitting at a, a bench and you're there with an attorney where some level of truth is trying to be evaluated as to what happened. But the kind of intentionally planned tests that God has set up for your life. Now, how many of you can remember back having been in a school setting and you weren't prepared for a test, a pop quiz? Anybody remember that far back? Yeah, okay. I always felt that way, it seemed like. I don't know. Um, I remember once as in the very early part of my college career, I uh, was more than unprepared. I had um, assumed in my first semester that the college exam, the final exam schedule, uh, was the identical times that the classes were being held. So during the first 15 weeks of that semester, I knew when my classes were. I just assumed that on this particular Tuesday, the geography final exam would be held. And what I didn't realize was that the exam schedules don't line up with the class schedules. So I showed up an entire 24 hours late for the exam. 
Okay, I was a day late and more than a dollar short. The <laughs> professor, there was no one in the class space, and I found my way to the professor's office. And I remember him sitting back with this kind of wry grin on his face. Well, Mr. Gleiman, I thought I might be seeing you today. So he was gracious enough and allowed me to take the test in, in, in his office, and, and he accepted that as, as, as a response to the need there. The reality is we don't always recognize the tests that God is bringing us through for our good. We don't see them coming. We don't recognize those. So today we're going to talk about trials, how they are God-ordained opportunities to help us grow strong. So often we view the difficult circumstances in our life as things that defeat us or discourage us or make us question our faith sometimes or question where we stand with God. And God's intention in his sovereign view is the exact opposite. How many of you ever used a personal trainer? Anybody used in this room? I recall going, a few of you have, okay. And a personal trainer is not just designing a course of physical training for just a mass of people. It's personal. It's designed theoretically just for you. And I remember when I was out at, in California going through my training uh, for ministry, I joined a gym out there, and one of my friends joined the same gym, just thinking, you know, we 20-year-olds needed to keep in shape, of course. Uh, I, I need to do it now way more than I did then. And I remember I just decided to kind of navigate my, the first day there and the kind of trying the place out. I decided to navigate and do my own little workout. And I'll say it this way. I didn't push myself too hard, okay? My friend got with one of the guys, the trainers at the gym, and he took him through the paces. Well, the next day, my friend Al couldn't even get out of bed. He was so sore. And I'm like, hey, that's a great gym. I like it. Okay. Guess who got stronger? Him. Okay. Guess who stayed in my flimsy, weak stat? I did. So as God designs tests for us, I want to just lay this foundation before I go any further today. From his point of view, he's looking at you and I as beloved children whom he wants the best for. And he has specifically designed a course of training for you that will bring you to the best possible state, which is the image of Christ. So when we begin with an understanding that trials come for a good reason and a good purpose, and sometimes they're pop quizzes we're not, we think we're not prepared for, and sometimes they're things that we can't make sense of when they hit us, but if deep down we can affirm and say, God, you know what you're doing, and I trust there's a good outcome you have in mind. Well, I'll say it a different way. Quoting Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where God says to us through the Apostle Paul, For God works for the good in all circumstances for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And do you know that you have been called by God? You, you know, that's a fundamental thing we have to understand is you know him because he said, I want you to know me. We think, well, we sought him out or we had this religious experience or we pursued him. And yes, there's the human response as part of it. But every one of us know him and are in relationship with him to the degree that we are because God has said, I want you to know me. His spirit has revealed him to us and he has drawn us to himself. So when we get into that equation in relationship with God at that very moment, Romans 8 goes on to tell us that those God loves, he foreknew, he knew ahead of time you were going to respond to him and be his children, and he devised a plan for your life. And I want you to just think about that. In every phase of it, he didn't just for your childhood or just for your teen years or for your, you know, your time when maybe you're married in your 20s and 30s, developing your career or the seasons of middle age or later stages of life. He didn't leave any plan, any part of our life outside of his plan. So wherever you are today, God has a plan that he is working 
out in your life. That's the backdrop I want to start as we consider trials. Because like I said a moment ago, if we were to vote for less suffering, we'd probably do that. And if we would, would vote for less uh, trials, I think we'd all do the same thing as well. We'd choose the, the easier course. I'll share another analogy. Then I'll, I got so many stories I could talk, but I'll get to the focus here. When I was a freshman in high school, I signed up for the cross-country team. I liked to run somewhat. Didn't like to run that much, but I liked to run. And I went to Montini High School in those days out here in Lombard. And we didn't have a lot of area to run around there, so the Lombard Commons was our training area for cross-country. So we ran the several miles from 16th Street over to Lombard Commons. Then we'd ran 10 miles there and back and forth on the Prairie Path. And then we would run as a team back to Montini. Well, I recall one day after practice, um, a friend of mine suggested that maybe we should hitchhike back to school as opposed to running with the rest of the guys. We were tired. And I said, and there's no young people there, so hitchhiking I don't recommend, okay, for you especially. The, the fact is, so we dropped back. My friend faked an injury. You know, said, oh, my leg, my leg. So he sat on the ground, and I attended to him, and the rest of the group ran on. And so we went out on Westmore there and hitchhiked back to school. So he picked us up right away, got us there. Unfortunately for us, we got back to school ahead of the coach who was driving. Okay. <laughs> And he sees us there. He's like, uh, how did you guys get here? Well, we were busted. And um, the, the problem was we were trying to find a shortcut. Okay. And I also remember the first meet that we had, the first cross-country meet, which is a three-mile length in high school. My friend Tom, uh, who was the one who didn't want to run, but he was walking during – he was getting tired. He's like, Rick, slow down. I want to walk. I'm like, this is a race, Tom. We're supposed to try to win this thing. He wasn't prepared. So God's preparation in our lives – and the trials he brings us through with intentionality always meant to build us and strengthen us and prepare us for the things that he knows he wants us to experience. If we're not prepared, if we don't pass the tests, if you will, if we don't allow endurance to work in us, then we can't enjoy the life that God has for us to its full. So that's the backdrop I want to lay for us as we look at this. Last week we talked about some of our reactions to the trials and pain and suffering, and I've already talked about several of these um, But today, this is what I want to begin to focus on, is our misunderstandings of God's purposes in trials. One of the things I'm going to get to here eventually today is that trials come in many shapes and sizes. And sometimes, and look across a group this size, it seems like some people get more trials than others. It seems there's an imbalance. It seems sometimes some people are constantly you know, constantly dealing with things and they never seem to get out from that. And others seem to be, you know, living the, the, the Disney World version of life. They're just living in, the, in the, the superficial. The reality is in God's economy, he does know what's, what he's doing. And we can, if we misunderstand God's purpose, we get upset and we get in an inner turmoil, start shaking our fist at God, and we start getting mad at him. I'm coming back to this for a reason. God created you to be an emotional being. God created you with a mind to think and reason, and he created you with a volition to make choices, the ability to make decisions. All of that's part of the equation in our relationship with God. If you're experiencing or in the middle of something that you don't understand intellectually that has caused emotional pain or you're feeling pain and that you didn't choose it, that's the number one thing we have to understand. God chooses things that we don't choose for us. It's so easy for us then to get mad at God and say, God, how in the world did I get here? Why did you let this happen? 
And I want to just come back to that for a second and say this. There's a way to ask that question. I think God will answer it. And it's a difference between, why did you let me get into this? Why did you let this happen in my life? Shaking a fist. And the other one's with an open hand saying, God, what's going on? What do I need to learn? What are you trying to get through to me? What, what lesson do I need to grow in here? One is, it's both conversation with God. One, you're going to get silence. <laughs> the other, you're going to get wisdom. And that's why the scriptures tell us in James chapter 1, we'll get to that in a second, if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask God. So if you're in the middle of even right now today something that doesn't make sense, it seems like you're being constantly bombarded with things that are overwhelming to you and you can hardly get perspective is, is to engage God in that conversation and ask him the hardest questions. But expect a response. Ask in a way to expect a response. The last thing about how we might misunderstand or react wrongly is to give up and just say, well, you know, my life's just miserable. I'm destined to suffer. There's no joy in my life. I'm just going to sink down. And it's, that's that emotive part of us. But there's a decision that gets made that we stop trying. We stop seeking for wisdom. We stop really believing there's some good that can come out of what's going on in our lives. And we allow ourselves to sink down into discouragement and worse into depression. And despair is this finality. It just says there's no hope anymore. Things will never get better. And if you're that place today, let me encourage you. God understands that. God gets that. He understands that. He can meet you there. But he wants to take you by the hand and take you to a better place than that. God has not designed or devised any of the trials or circumstances he's allowed in your life to get you into despair. And he wants to lift you from that place. That's a place of being broken in heart where your, your volition, your willingness to do and try and, and experience and willing to get into emotive situations where you experience life in a new way, once you've given up, you lose the zest for living. And God would say, I've come that for you that you'd have life and have it abundantly. Part of that is coming back to God, where did I, where did I start getting so mad at you that I stopped listening to you? Where did I get so mad at you about what's happened in my life that, that I stopped listening to the counsel of others or seeking the counsel of godly counsel? And he'll probably route you right back to a place where you got off the road someplace and then help you get back on. If you're feeling that discouraged and you really are that far down, I encourage you to seek some help. Or if you know someone that's in that place, to get some help, to get some perspective and some prayer and some encouragement and maybe some counsel to get back. Because our God is good to the core. He really is. He is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So if you're that place, if you've sunk into that place or, or know someone that has, by all means, there is hope and there is help, and God has a better way of working through that. The last thing I'm going to say, this is the Jonah syndrome, which is to run away from and try and hide from God. Kind of like, well, if I get away from God, then I get away from the trials, the challenges, the suffering that he's designed for my life. Just read the book of Jonah. It's a short one. It doesn't work. Okay. You can't get away from him. Okay. And you, really, we shouldn't want to. If we feel like the course that he's chosen for us is too hard, let me just encourage you. I recall some years back, uh, we used to go to Arizona a lot in the wintertime, and I suspect some of you go to warm places in the winter as well. And in the area near the dude ranch that we would, my parents took us to in those days, there was this mountain. 
called Vulture Peak, and it was one of those ones that kind of sloped up, kind of the gradual hike for the first couple of hours, and then it was pretty much a sheer peak at the top. There was a path up there that was a probably about 89-degree angle, okay, not 90 straight up. Those kind of are really scary, but I recall getting to that place two different times with somebody with me. One was with a, a friend, and she became very afraid. A bunch of us are climbing the mountain, and she became very afraid. She said, I, I can't go any higher, and she just stopped. She stopped. So this great and the beautiful thing about this mountain is when you get to the top of it, it's this big flat area. I mean, a huge, just like a flat top on it. So you can walk around up there. You can camp out up there. You see the view for hundreds of miles in every direction is gorgeous. It's like this glorious heavenly view of things. But you don't get there until you, you don't see that until you get to the top of it. And I recall that having had the conversation, she was afraid. She was on a sheer cliff like this, just standing. I can't go any higher. And somehow God just put it in my mind to get her mind off what she was doing. And we started talking about something else, and before long, we were at the top. She stopped looking at the trial. She stopped looking at the seemingly insurmountable circumstance just long enough to figure out that God was trying to tell her, in the, in the analogy here, that she could do it. If God has brought you into something that seems insurmountable for you, don't sell yourself so short. He knows what he's made you out of. He has not designed you for defeat. He's not designed you to uh, bring you into failure. And so when we run away from God's plans or his purposes or even his correction, and, and that discipline, not punishment, discipline meaning training, we're saying, well, I don't think I could ever do that, God. I can never forgive that person. I can't be that Christ-like. I can't go into that situation again because it's just too difficult. What I want you to hear is God saying, no, I, I've given you the right stuff. I've given you my Holy Spirit. I've given you my nature. And further than that, the scripture tells us he has given us his own DNA. If any person is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us we are a new creature. A new person is formed with the DNA of God in us. And so when God puts us through those <clears throat> challenges and sometimes we want to run away, he's just simply saying, I just want to help you realize what you're capable of in me. Again, not to defeat us, but to develop us into the image of of Christ. And those mountain climbing experiences, the other one I'll share the same mountain. Went up there once with my son when he was probably a little younger than, and my wife was probably very nervous. She's over here. Here's Carol over here. You can wave, honey. I'll, I'll pick on you once here. Um, and being a concerned mother was always concerned that he may not be able to make it to the top. And the first time we went up there, we got very near the top in the same sheer place. And he stopped. And I just said, okay, you know, you want me to go on? You want me to carry on and go up the rest of the way? He said, yeah, I'll just hang out here. So he stayed there. But you know what? Next year or so, we went out there again, and guess what? He made it the next time. He didn't give up. He believed he could do it. And there's some things, some mountains we've all come to the brink of and just simply said, I can't do this. And the Holy Spirit is wanting to beckon us, beckon us forward into that place that we sometimes think we can't handle. Well, I'll say it a different way. God knows what he put in you and what you're capable of handling, and he's going to see to it through the trials he devises for you that you come to understand that as well. So that's kind of the backdrop of our responses. Coming back to James here, because this is such a profound passage for us. I looked at it last week with us, and we're going to look at it again today. James, who knew a little bit about going through trials and suffering, this James is the natural brother of Jesus Christ. He was born of the same mother, he was born in the same household, the scripture reveals. 
So he grew up with a perfect brother. Okay? And if you had siblings that were favored over you, just think about this a second. Okay, Jesus Christ was perfect. Did his parents, they yelled at him once, sort of, when he went back to the temple and they left him behind. But you're talking about somebody who literally did walk on water. Okay? Imagine being his sibling. Imagine how ashamed and, like, unapproved by your parents. And, of course, Mary and Joseph knew Jesus was a unique and special son. He was immaculately conceived, meaning he, miraculously conceived. It was, there was something miraculous about him from the very beginning. God put uh, the seed into Mary's womb. So he was unique. The scripture reveals Jesus had four other natural brothers. James, this James who wrote the book of James is one of them. So, and he didn't even believe. He didn't even believe until later in life after the resurrection it would appear. He eventually became one of the leaders of the church at Jerusalem alongside of Peter and ultimately penned the words we're going to look at here today. So he knew a little bit about trials, I suspect, and feeling like he didn't measure up. But James gives us this counsel. I touched on this last week. When you look at the trying circumstances in your life, it is how we are looking at them that matters. So he says, takes it all the way to the other end of the spectrum and says, consider it pure joy. Now, in a group like this, if I were to ask for a show of hands, what are some things we normally consider to be pure joy? What, what brings great joy to your hearts? I've heard some things today. What are some things that bring joy to your heart? Like holding a grandchild, maybe? <laughs> a baby. Babies have this way of just sort of raising up within us this joy. There's, there's something so special and unique. And, and my wife and I are, are blessed to have our first granddaughter. And she just is a bundle of joy, even when she's being a little defiant. Right, honey? And she's learned to say no now. Yeah. No. And she's so cute. She shakes her head back and forth. No, I don't want to do that. It's so funny how it's... But there's this joy. What else brings, has brought joy to us? What are the things we associate with joy? A new pet? Okay, what kind of pet do you have? A cat. Okay, what's your cat's name? Boo. What's that? Oh, oh you, you didn't choose that name. Boo Boo. Wasn't that uh, Yogi Bear and Boo Boo? Okay, pets. Yes, pets are joy. What other things bring joy to us? We also have a change of seasons. So, which seasons do you like? Everyone. Battery's going down on this thing. If you can find somebody that's... Music can bring joy. Which kind of music brings you the most joy? Yeah, that doesn't bring joy either. Okay, music. Uh, who else would say music brings joy? Classical? How many for classical music? A symphony orchestra. How many Led Zeppelin... He's still got his hand up over you. Some of you have your hands up. Okay, who else? What else brings joy? Okay, using your creativity and, and doing something that produces something. What else? Nature itself, seeing the beauty of a sunrise, sunset, a lake, or whatever else exactly. Okay, right here. Friends. Okay, so relationships can be a great source of joy. What else? Alice? Very good. Accomplishing something that you didn't think you could do brings a great sense of joy and uh, fulfillment in it. Right here, Don. Skiing powder snow in the Rockies. Oh, yes, that's great. You still doing that? <laughs> One sec, right back. Larry. A great piece of pie. And what kind of pie would that be? 
Cherry, okay, okay. <laughs> I like that. Go ahead, Grace. Having prayer partners, that's wonderful. Exactly. Go ahead. Health in your family, health of your family, exactly. Being healthy and having good good times that way. Anything else? We, this is great. There's tons of things to bring joy. Go ahead. Okay, seeing your daughter. Okay, as a parent, seeing your daughter survive cancer and live on in a healthy way forward from that. Absolutely, seeing that, that great triumph there. Anything else anybody would like to share that brings joy? Go ahead. Losing weight. Okay. Yeah, that, that probably does bring joy, doesn't it? <laughs> does anybody get joy over gaining weight? Anybody on that side? Why not? I mean, come on. It's fun gaining weight, isn't it? <laughs> That's that pie that Larry's talking about. Go ahead. Reading God's Word can bring joy to us. So there's many things, that, and there's probably a lot of other things welling up in your thinking that bring joy to us, but we don't usually associate pain or suffering or those kind of things as something to be considered as bringing joy. But I want you to hold the thought. Um, and Sherry, Sherry, can you find Larry or um, uh, Rich to get a 9-volt battery for the battery pack here? I want you to hold that thought, and this is an association thing. The thing that brings you the most joy, just think of the two or three things, and there's a ton of things that we mentioned here. Think of how you feel, and then, James says, feel that same way, choose to feel that same way about everything that happens to you. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? But what it does is it empowers us not to be the victim of our circumstances. I think that was Curly Howard that said, I'm a victim of my circumstances, something like that. When we feel like we are the victims of our circumstances, we feel powerless. We feel helpless. When we adopt James's through the Holy Spirit's instruction to us to instead choose, no matter what is happening, to consider it joy and associate difficult circumstances with the kind of joy that things naturally come to us, we are becoming not victims. We're becoming the victors. Now God is causing us to overcome and live our life from a different perspective. And I just encourage you to see it in that light. When you read this passage, when you consider the difficult circumstances you're facing at this time in your life, and say, okay, this is something I can choose to do. I don't just have to sit here and take it, or grin and bear it, or kind of grind my way through this. I can consider it joy. And he says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. A lot said right there. There's not just one kind of trial. There's all kinds of different ones because you know, and I said this last week, that the testing of your faith produces something. And then he goes on to say this. Let perseverance, that word I said last week, hupomene, the ability to stand up under pressure, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Teleos is the Greek word there. Lacking, not lacking anything. There's a place in our development in Christ where we get to a place of completion. We know it will be finalized as we see him as he is. Nobody reaches absolute perfection in this world, but that's where you and I are headed. No stone will be left unturned. No area of weakness will be left undeveloped in God's economy. So this is a lifelong journey. Did you know you're getting into this when you came to Christ? <laughs> I hope you do because it's the best path possible. It's the road that leads to life is a narrow gate and a steep way, but you're getting somewhere. Not one, and I would say this emphatically and clearly, not one ounce of suffering, 
difficulty, challenge, or trial in God's plan is wasted. There is no purposeless suffering in God's plan for you. It's all designed for a purpose. In the same way as a college professor or high school teacher designs a course of study with tests and papers and such to create the outcome of people learning a subject, God has designed a plan that will get you to that place. And and James says this is so central to it that we allow perseverance to grow so it makes us mature and then complete. And the word again is teleos. Now, Jesus used the same word in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, be perfect, be complete, as your Father in heaven is complete. When God's done with you, when he's done with me, I'm not going to be impatient anymore about anything. I'm going to be like God, and so are you. There's going to be no one you don't love. God loves the ungodly. God loves everybody. There's not going to be people that just drive you nuts anymore. Wouldn't that be nice? It's not just because they're not around. It's because you have so been changed by God that you see things like he does. So I want you to be bearing that in mind, the association between the things that naturally bring you joy, and I associate with all of those uh, in so many ways. There's pl- probably plenty of other things. And then to say, God, I'm going to choose to consider this that same kind of joy. And as we do that, we'll be able to realize we're on a journey that leads to perfection. Now, are you leaving anybody behind in that equation? Are there those that you've walked with in your seasons of life? I'm going to turn this thing off. I just need to get the battery start going. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Is, are there others around you in your journey with Christ that haven't felt like going the same direction? That have said, why are you such an addict? Is this one back on again? Are we on here? Good. Okay. Okay. Oh, you want to switch? Okay, good. We'll try to do that. That's much better. I like using both my hands when I'm speaking. I like kind of do this kind of thing. Not everybody you know, not everybody that follows Christ, not everybody that attends church wants this. There are many who would like to stay at the bottom of the mountain and just look up and go, that'd be nice to be up there, but I really don't want to climb that. I don't want to go through all of that. Is there an easier way? So the the easier way for many is to dumb down the theology, is to demythify, in their minds, the Bible. The expectations and challenges and call of God in the Bible is to take the Bible, God's revealed truth to us, and kind of get it out of the equation. And sad to say in our time, there are countless churches and religious groups and even denominations that have taken the Bible, and I'll have one in my hand, and just sort of set it aside. And let's adopt a new philosophy of things because we don't like the God of the Bible. That's what they're saying. Friends, that's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? Is to try to change the God in heaven to be one we like instead of letting the God of heaven change us to be like him. We live in a culture that wants an easy way. You and I, and I include myself in this, have grown up, and especially the generation uh, that is mostly represented in this room, in a, in a world that wasn't so easy. Not everything has been handed to everybody. Not everything's become an entitlement. Most of what you've experienced and had in your life, you've earned it. Okay, There's a culture around us that wants to say, there's got to be an easier way. Give it to me. And 
we have to be careful as a church of Jesus Christ to realize, well, God doesn't change. <laughs> his expectations, his standards, and his purposes remain the same for every generation. The way we express it, is, it changes, music changes, worship styles can change, those kind of things. But the God of the Bible, we should never <laughs> begin to change him so that he fits our needs. It's the other way around. He's trying to change us to fit into his world. Larry? Along with this, do you think it's also legitimate for us to choose not to associate with some people sometime that, you know, they simply are, 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 are going to hold back what we're attempting to do and, and they're not because they're not going to follow us? That's a great, great question. Larry, and you could hear it. Larry saying is it reasonable to not choose not to associate with others who may not be walking the same path? Well, the scripture says that bad company corrupts good morals. OK, that's a simple statement. The fact is we need to be willing to recognize the difference between those that we're able to reach to and we're walking and have fellowship with, that we can support each other, like in a place like this, who understand the purposes of God better. We can come alongside each other and say, God's going to help you through this from those who are really not following and just kind of sitting back from afar. I think there's got to be a wisdom and a discernment and to reach out to them. I agree with that that notion. But I want to look at trials specifically a little bit more um, today from a slightly different angle. I think there's eight truths we're going to talk about. I said this last week. I'm saying it again a different way. This is on the darker brown sheet I gave to you, so you don't have to be scribbling all this down. These things are all on there. Is the trials and suffering that come from our fact of life? It's just a matter of fact. It shouldn't discourage us or depress us or make us feel... I don't think there's anybody on the planet or very many people on this planet that would deny the fact that trials are difficult or suffering is part of life. So we just accept it. No one is exempt from it. Like I said at the beginning, it seems sometimes like some people have a free pass. Their marriages seem perfect. Their children are perfect. They're Ken and Barbie with their kids. Did Ken and Barbie ever have children in the Barbie stuff? That everything's just right. Nobody ever got sick. Nobody ever died an untimely death. Nobody was killed in the war. Nobody this and seemed, and everything went financially great. Everything they touched turned to gold. It seems like there's that illusion and that delusion in the American dream. It says that's that's what you know that's what really making it looks like, but that's an illusion and a delusion of reality. No one is exempt in God's economy. Some and it seems like in this world there seems to be that imbalance, but remember what Jesus said: the first will be last, and the last will be first. So I'm not sure all the application of that. I know it in this world, but that means in the next, those who are in power are going to be serving. <laughs> at the lowest level, and it's going to be a reversal of where we are today. God's sense of fairness and justice is from a different angle than ours, but we should never accept that there's a path that doesn't include this opportunity for growth. I do believe there's plateaus. I do believe there's times and seasons where we're having rep- rapid growth, kind of like the mar- more modern treadmills that have those, if you use those treadmills or ellipticals or recumbent bikes or those kind of different things that are programmed. So they, they push you for a while, then you get to a plateau, and you push you for a while and get to the, it's called, you know, this special kind of training that they, it's the best way to work your heart. Well, God does that. He knows all of life is not a trial. There are seasons of enjoyment, seasons of blessing, seasons when we say, thank you, God. And then he says, are you ready? Let's take the next surge and let's go forward again. He's not trying to wear us out. But trials are common to life. Bob? 
One sec, I want to get a microphone so someone hear you firsthand. Just one sec, Dick's going to bring a microphone. I'm grateful the poets have expressed ideas better than I can, such as, when you're weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. Right. In his arms he'll take and shield you. You will find a comfort there. Precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. Amen. Amen. So as we consider what's going on in our present life or what's gone on 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, is to realize they're a fact of life, trials and difficulties, but when we gain a better understanding of them, they're going to seem different to us. Trials come in many different forms. What God will use to grow me may not be the same thing he uses to grow you. It's just that simple. When I was training to play tennis in high school, played on the tennis team and enjoyed that, um, God blessed me with I could run fast, okay? I was a quick, that helped me play tennis and other sports. I was one of the fastest people in the school. The problem with that was when the tennis team was being trained and we're running all these drills and sprinting, I wasn't really sprinting. I was still ahead of everybody. I was only running at half speed, okay? And not quite half speed. I wasn't that much faster. But it was almost like this isn't really a trial for me. The coach needed to figure that out and push me a little harder, okay? That would have been better. God knows what your talents and abilities and resources and who you are and he has fine-tuned the intensity and the duration of the trials just for you. If you've ever gotten to the place where you said, <clears throat> I can't take this anymore, okay, I've, I'm at my limit, okay, that's just about where God wants to bring us so to help us grow to the next level. Not the caving in and saying, I can't take this and I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm at my maximum. God says, I know. I know where your maximum is. I remember times when he's, I thought I was cranking on every cylinder I had and really pushing and, God, I'm, this is all I can do. And, and I remember him vividly saying this back in my college days, you're about 50% now. You have no idea what I'm going to take you to and take you through. I thought I was doing you know, great and doing everything. And he says, you're about half, you're about half speed right now. I've got just eight more cylinders for me to fire up inside of you. So God d- designs the intensity and the duration I, can't, I don't have a simple explanation why some people, like Job in the Bible, were selected by whom? Who selected Job? Well, Satan tried to pick on him, and God said, <clears throat> look at my servant Job. Look at him. God picked him out. And then he goes through this horrendous series of trials just for being a good guy, right? Just because he was one of God's favorites. He was chosen. And everything seemed to be taken away from him, and you have to read through all those chapters of Job and the friends trying to advise him with the ways they're doing. But what happens at the end of the story? What happened to Job? Uh, double. God gave him double what the enemy wanted to steal from him. And I want you to think about if the intensity and the duration of your trial seems long, there's a huge blessing at the end of it. The fulcrum that God's economy works on is the longer the trial, the greater the blessing. I want you to hear that because that's a biblical principle. Thirdly, and I'm going to use this as a a springboard to talk about some other things here, trials test our faith. Now, any of you teachers by profession? I know a few. Okay, we've got a few of you. Um, When you put tests together, did you give them the answer key? 
along with it? That kind of defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? They probably wouldn't study. If they knew every test they went into, that you're going to just give them the answers right away, nobody would try. They wouldn't study. They wouldn't try to learn. No, you devise a test to evaluate and help your students, presumably, learn the material necessary to get them on to the next, next phase of things. Um, I had a wonderful professor at one stage in my college career, Dr. John Carney, who was a, uh, a Christian, not a monk, but a brother. He was in the, bro- he was in the, in the uh, holy orders that way. And then he left that and went into you know, being a professor. Great guy. Understood the grace of God quite well. So we would take tests, not with an answer key, but we'd take our tests. And then he allowed any student, they want to take their test after they'd gotten the grade, if they got a C on it, and work on it again and come back to his office privately. And he, would, he put it this way. He would appreciate their grade. In other words, you got a C and you did more work and showed that you learned it, he would increase your grade. You had a second chance to actually get the, the test right. And that's how God works. If we take a test, a test of our faith, and we fail it, whether through sin, whether through the inability to fulfill some promise we've made or expectation or live up to something, God gives us the opportunity to do it again. I'll say it even more strongly than that. God is not giving you tests to cause you to fail. He's giving you tests to help you learn how to succeed in his his ways. So if you failed miserably at something, whatever you think that is, and faltered in some way, like Dr. Carney, go back to God and say, God, can I do this again? And he will say absolutely emphatically, yes. Let's figure out what you missed here. Let's figure out what I'm trying to teach you through this. And he'll give you that opportunity to redeem and recover and to appreciate your grade. The next thing about tests, if we can get to the place where we see the trials are valuable, what are some of the most valuable, what's the number one valuable thing to all of you that you consider value? Health is a big one. Without health, we don't have much sense of experience of joy in life. What else is valuable to us? Family. Again. Um, when we can recognize that the tests and trials God brings to us are valuable, we're going to bring... I'm not sure what's going on with these things. He suggested I try this one. We'll, we'll keep working on this. This is one of those little tie-out tests, tests and trials, right? We're going to try. Is this any better? Well, it's louder. That's true. Okay. Recognizing difficulties and, and struggles in our life as something to be valued and embraced will help us to, I'll say it really simply, get through them a lot quicker. Because the, the children of Israel got out in the wilderness. He had a path for them to get into the promised land. You recall the story in the Old Testament, right? It was a relatively short distance between Egypt and the land of Palestine, the promised land on the other side of the Jordan River in Canaan. But the Israelites didn't learn their lessons. And so God, as the old song says, take another lap around Mount Sinai. You guys aren't getting out of this wilderness until I'm done with you. And the sad thing is for 40 years, they never learned Got to keep sending them around. Take another lap. You're not getting it. And they never achieved the promised land he had for them. When we embrace God's purposes, what are you trying to teach me? We're going to move through it much more quickly. Three more things. We're going to four more here today. I'm watching our time. 
go to number six here. Trials encourage or force us, I'll say, to pray for wisdom. And sometimes the first time you ask God a question, like for wisdom, you may not get the answer right away. You ever had that happen? Or most of you have a direct line to heaven, and like you call God and the phone rings right back and, and you've got an answer. It's hard to perceive and understand because our limited understanding has to change and go to a new place for God to be able to speak wisdom to us. So James promises us in James chapter 1, after just saying, consider pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, he then goes on, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you don't know what's going on, he says, ask God, and he will provide. It doesn't say how, it doesn't say exactly what means, but he says he will provide, and he'll supply it freely to you without finding fault. In other words, There are no stupid questions with God. If you don't know what's going on, if you're facing something, but God's trials and difficulties, and it's a matter of fact, and I only bring this up to illustrate this point, when the tragedy, the horrible evil of 9-11 happened in this country, what happened to church attendance? This church and churches across this, this country were suddenly had a surge of attendance. We had people in the church I was in down the street at that, that I remember that week very vividly, just wandering into the church building, just Oak Brook residents who had never been there before, just coming to some place to pray. A horrible tragedy, an evil thing. God had nothing to do with that. I'm, I'm, I'm online to say that was an evil act. Killing people is not God's will or purpose. But the result of a challenge was it, it encouraged people to seek him out. Now, in our lives, in the, in the body of Christ, is when we go through difficulties, sometimes we can lessen our communication with God, and he has a way of bringing us back to that place. Why? Because he wants that. When all is said and done in this world, it's going to be you and Jesus, you and God the Father. On the judgment day and beyond, it's going to be a relationship with him. So it's really a good idea to engender that conversation now. Yes, we're going to see our lost loved ones in heaven. I have absolute, the scriptures are clear on that, that there are people we'll identify and know in the next life. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses, Old Testament saints, were there identifiable, and not the human forms, obviously, their spiritual form, and who they were. But the fact is, most importantly, you're going to be in relationship with God in heaven. And some of you are still praying your pets are going to be in heaven, and I'm not real clear on that one because the Bible's silent on that, okay? It doesn't say that. And I, I know that our dear dog, who's 15 years old, um, is pretty much down to her, probably her last few days. And we've, you know, if you've had a pet that long, she becomes like a part of your family. She is a part of the family. She actually spends more time in our house than we do because we go out all the time. The fact is we are going to see God face-to-face. And so when we have that conversation with him here, the deeper our conversations are with him here and now, the shorter and smaller that gap will be when we see him face to face. God is drawing us through our difficult circumstance. I keep moving closer to you because I don't like to be so far away. He's drawing us into that place. Two other things about trials I want to touch base on, then we're going to uh, discuss a little bit. Having an eternal perspective as I said at the very beginning today, is what God is trying to inculcate into us, is to not look at the temporal, but look at the eternal. The sovereign God and his big scheme of things is looking at things from an eternal perspective. And I want you to hear this as I say it as gently as I can. 
when a child or a young person's life is taken. It makes no sense to us here, does it? We have this expectation that, well, we're supposed to live 70 or 80, and now longevity, tell, you know, the actuarial tables are saying people are living longer. We expect life in this world to be a certain duration. And when it isn't, there's this seemingly unfairness, sense of unfairness, there's this tragedy, there's this sense of that shouldn't have happened because we have this expectation. And it's hard to understand when those things happen. Done many funerals and memorials over the years for parents who have lost infants or children or teenagers or children in their 20s. In my own family, my dear father, who's 87 years old, has survived three of his children. I've lost two brothers and a sister in a very short space of time in the short space between the end of 2006 and 2010. Three of my siblings and my mother all passed away in that time. And I've watched my father have to deal with the loss of three of his children. It's been very difficult because parents are supposed to outlive their children, right? That's what we think. Hmm? Yeah, parents are sp- children are supposed to outlive their parents. But when it doesn't happen that way, thank you for correcting. That's why your wife has to be close sometimes. <laughs> Often, it's good, actually. It's dark enough she can't see any fuzz on me today to correct me on that stuff. There's always fuzz or feathers or stuff on my my suits. Um, something goes on inside of us when things don't line up with the way we think things should be by human values, and it breaks our hearts. God has an eternal perspective, and the difficulties and challenges in life, God is trying to teach us to see life from an eternal perspective. Isaiah 58 tells us these words and asks the question, why are the righteous taken? The prophet speaking, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Why are people taken away in the prime of life? Isaiah tells us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the righteous are taken to be spared from evil. This world has evil. The next one doesn't. The eternal perspective God has is people are taken from this one, they're graduating to the better world and God's economy. So God is trying to help us to get that eternal perspective on things so that we're not interpolating difficulties and challenges and even the the tragic things in this life that seem to make no sense. God has a place called heaven he lives in. He's gone before us and all of those who are in Christ to prepare a place for us someday to live in with him. And I look forward to that day. And I look forward to seeing the Lord and being in that place with him. So whatever we're dealing with in this world that we have to to get to that place is worth every bit of it to get there. And last but not least today, and I've covered a lot on trials here, there's no easy way to get to heaven. It's a free gift to the entrance, but to get heaven inside of us is a lifelong process. It's the most excellent way. And that's what God is about. He's aiming at forming in you the image of Christ so you're ready to live with him and the other perfected beings in heaven forever with him. There come, there will come a day when you won't sin anymore. Can you say amen to that? There'll be a a day that comes when everyone in Christ is made complete in him and no one in heaven will be sinning. No one will be evil. No one will be hurting people's feelings. No one will be violent in, in, in the things that we're so vexed with in this world. That day is coming, but it's not yet. The things we go through in this world will have been worth it, particularly when we see it from heaven's shores. I want to wrap up today, I think I need to, with a word from First Peter. And if you're looking at a New Testament book, 
deals with suffering, it's First and Second Peter in particular, who is writing to a persecuted group of believers. I love what he says here in chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. And the message translation says it this way. Friends, when life gets really difficult, and that hasn't changed, and I'm changing mine, I'm sorry. Two different screens here. When life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that job, God is not on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. I want to close with a word of prayer. If the battle has seemed too long, if the struggles have seemed too big, if the pain has seemed too great, I want to encourage you that glory is just around the corner for you. Either the victory and the, and the trial, the finishing of the test, or the completion of God's purpose in that particular area, but glory is around the corner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you <clears throat> that you were persistent enough to pursue us that you came after us, sending your son, the Lord Jesus, who you so loved the world that you gave him up for us all to save us. And then you, by your spirit, sought us out. You pursued us. You came after us. Even when we were ignoring you, even when we wanted nothing to do with you, and Lord, even now when we're mad at you or frustrated or lazy or backslidden or drifting away from you, you don't give up. You love us so much that you will never give up on us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us, but that you'll press on to complete the work that you began in us. Father, I pray for each and every one around this circle today who feels embroiled in the battle, who feels surrounded or entrapped even by trials that seem to have no end. I pray that you'll breathe through your word and by your spirit a fresh wind of encouragement, of perspective, and of strength to endure today. God, I pray that all of our hearts might be lifted with a new attitude to rejoice, to count it joy, to associate joy with the difficult things which we can't always understand because we know you're up to something really, really, really good in us and in our lives. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all. Look forward to seeing you next week, and hopefully we'll have overcome the trial of the microphones. So <laughs> God bless you. Can we get some lights back up? So I... thank Thanks. Thanks.